and welcome to another episode of My Pocket Psych. Very special episode. I'm joined by a special guest. But let's start uh, with first things first. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm a chartered psychologist and coach. And this podcast is all about the psychology of the workplace. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by someone who can bring us a great level of detail and expertise and experience in this space. Ross McIntosh. Ross, how are you doing? I'm really, really well, Richard. It's, I'm delighted to start my week having a chat with you. I always get so much from our chats together. That's brilliant. And, and ditto. It's nice to start the working week with a conversation like this before diving into all the other things. So you and I have known each other for a few years, but would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm an organizational and coaching psychologist. I'm freelance. I say that with a little note of almost doubt there, but I'm, I'm freelance. I work as an associate for a consultancy, and I also work at City University of London, where I partner with Dr. Paul Flaxman, who's a researcher and globally recognized expert in acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which forms a large part of my work with organizations. It's kind of foundational to what I do. I work with a whole host of organizations from consultancies, banks, fast-moving consumer goods to the NHS, teachers, government. I've done some work recently with the Treasury and also ballet companies in the UK. I work with the major ballet companies, bringing them skills to support their flexibility and adaptability in the workplace whilst looking after their own well-being. And one thing I must mention as I'm speaking to a fellow legend in the podcast field is I have a podcast, much like yourself, and it's a medium I really love. In fact, the more I do, the more I love the concept mm -hmm. of podcasting and that intimacy between, hopefully, that I can co-create with my guests and that intimacy, as if the listeners are just eavesdropping on a conversation, a, a gentle, relaxed conversation. So my podcast is called People Soup, and it aims to bring behavioral science to adults in the workplace in a way that's practical, accessible, and useful, and hopefully sometimes fun as well. And it really is. Uh, it does all of those things. I really like listening to it. And um, let me thank you for using the word legend there. I'm going to ensure that makes it into the final edit of this yeah. episode. Oh, so nice. listen, <laughs> you, you mentioned um, ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And you and I, well, that's how we know each other really isn't it? with our shared interest and usage of those frameworks in the work that we do translated for the workplace as um, sometimes references psychological flexibility. This is the skill set we're trying to impart. And you've mentioned quite a diversity of workplaces where you do this, very diverse, which is one of the things that jumps out at me about its application. It can work in so many different contexts and human beings can benefit from it in so many different ways. What are the, the kinds of ways your clients want to benefit from this? So what do you think uh, are the main ways they are benefiting from attending this kind of training? I think it can vary on by individuals. And sometimes that there are contexts where you think, oh gosh, this is, this is, this feels quite like a, a rigid context. For instance, some 
not all, but some ballet companies have quite a regimental structure around their day-to-day activity Mm -hmm. and their preparation for performance and their drive to to achieve beautiful artistic interpretations. And for them, sometimes it can be on that moment where they're retiring. Because ballet is a is an intense career. Yeah. And folks in ballet retire maybe if they're lucky in their thirties, maybe earlier. But it's so intense and at that point where they retire, it can be, blimey, well what do I do now? Absolutely. And the way act as you say, it, it's it's skills based. There are there are processes that can help them work out who they want to be in the next chapter of their career and their lives. Mm. When they're facing perhaps that sense of loss and bewilderment, in others, in leaders, for example, it can really help us. Say on one to one work, it can really help me work alongside a leader and help unpack who they really want to be. Who do they want to be as a leader? Because I think leaders can sometimes feel forced into a particular model. Someone presents them with a leadership model and they feel like they're forced into it and it becomes a a cage that restricts them and doesn't allow them the freedom to be their authentic selves. And sometimes leaders, particularly perhaps if they're feeling a bit overwhelmed or feeling the relentlessness of work, they can attach themselves to a guru. You know these people who say, hey, I'm the chief of a major multinational, and this is my daily recipe for success. I get mm-hmm. up at four, well, I sleep in an oxygen tank. I get up at 4 a.m. I do um, an hour and a half of meditation and yoga. Then I eat some egg whites. Then I go for a run, and then I start my day, and I work for 12 hours or something like that. I mean, you've outlined my routine to the T, obviously. <laughs> well, I didn't want to reveal that to your to your listeners, Richard, but you know. But sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I do what X does, then I'll be as successful as them and I'll be a multi-gazillionaire. And it's it's a tempting trap to fall into. But I think it takes us away from being our authentic selves. And 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 frankly, other ways to use act in the workplace, as we know from the evidence base. Building that psychological flexibility increases psychological well-being. And psychological well-being is the most reliable pr- predictor of performance, attendance, and turnover. So why would we not want to invest in that for our people, mm. supporting them in developing skills that they perhaps never come across in their adult lives? quite an eye-opener when you present that. And and I'm conscious that um, we've referenced ACT and psychological flexibility a few times now. So listeners, if if this is the first time you've come across those terms, or this is the first episode of My Pocket Psych you're listening to, you're very welcome. And I will include some links in the show notes where you can find out a little bit more about those concepts if they're of interest to you. But that's really going to be our focus today. I'm really um, delighted you're able to join me because I want to talk to you about authentic leadership, maybe examine this concept through that lens and see what it is, how we can cultivate it, what do we get from it, and so on. So let's start with the fundamentals. What do you mean by authentic leadership? Well, this is this is a question I think we could spend a whole heap of time on you and me, but let me try and boil it down or distill it down. And 
I think people talk about authentic leadership more and more in organizations. And people talk about bringing their whole, whole selves to work. Then when someone does bring their whole self to work, people go, hell no, I didn't mean all that stuff. I, I wanted a filtered version of you. So what is it? Is there a way we can conceptualize authentic leadership? And I came across the work of Dr. Fiona Beddows-Jones, who wrote a book called Divided by Gender, United by Chocolate, Differences in the Boardroom. And part of that is her unpacking and researching this concept of authentic leadership. And thanks to my friend, Dr. Hayley Lewis, who did one of her amazing sketch notes, I've got a little summary of Fiona's research. And I thought it might be useful for you and me just to reflect on that if I present it to you and maybe we just have a little chat about it. That would be great. Love a chat about concepts. So this is adapted from the work of Fiona Beddows-Jones and there are 10 principles of authentic leadership. The first one is being unique, being authentic in your own way regarding personal leadership style and underpinning philosophy. And for me, that goes back to not being forced into a model, mm. allowing your true style to flourish, which kind of makes it easier. It makes it less stressful than presenting a facade to uh, colleagues or an organization. Some kind of persona that is switched on at the beginning of the working day. And it implies to me lots of that should element of behavior. I should be like this. I shouldn't display this. Mm. Uh, I should be able to have this impact on others. Because even if we put the word authentic to one side, the word leadership is packed with inferences and meanings. So I like that. I like that um, your, your, your true self, your unique self, but that implies you need to know that, doesn't it? You need to be in, in, in touch with who you are. Mm, yeah. And sometimes we don't pause to reflect on that. And I'll come back to that word pause a bit later on because I think it's so important for leaders. So the next principle is courage, and this is about leading with courage, emotional and physical bravery, as well as compassion. Mm. Absolutely agree. If you're leading a group on a new initiative, perhaps a new change program, it needs that courage. And I'd almost, I'd almost tease out compassion there as a separate principle as well, mm. personally. Because mm. I think compassion can help with that that longer journey in change. Compassion both towards the leadership self, but also towards others around you. Absolutely. And courage is an interesting word, isn't it? Because I can immediately think of potential downsides to how that's interpreted, you know, and how that could be interpreted by certain people as, you know, very lowest common denominator, man up kind of thinking. Rather than when I encounter in the literature that we use, when I encounter words like courage and, and being brave, it's about doing stuff you know to be important, even though you're not guaranteed success. You're being brave because you're trying things you know are important and you're not quite sure how they're going to work. That, that I think is, is a real element of leading others because nothing is certain, really. Mm -hmm. and if you only do what you're absolutely guaranteed to know will work, you're depriving yourself of lots of opportunities, aren't you? Absolutely. Beautifully, beautifully put. So the next principle, one close to yours and my heart, is awareness, being both self-aware and aware of others. 
Mm. Sounds sounds quite fundamental and basic, but heck, when times are turbulent, we can often lose sight of that awareness and get trapped inside our own heads. Absolutely. And the awareness of how our behavior impacts others and the awareness of how our emotional expression or communication Mm. style has an impact on others. It's work though, isn't it? To be self-aware and to be aware of others. So there's no surprise that people can sometimes find that difficult when they're doing that in addition to all of the other pressures and challenges that leaders face. Yeah, absolutely. The next one is trust, trusting others and being trusted. Mm. Easy for me to say those words, far more difficult to bring them to life in our behavior. Absolutely. And you know what's just popped into my head related to that? And you, you tell me if you think this is a good example of that, but these very generic calls for the return to the office. You know, we need to be in the same place to be productive. People can't be trusted if they're at home all the time. That, you know, that seems to fly in the face of trust as an authentic leader. What do you think? Absolutely. And I was surprised this year I heard a manager say, well, I say manager, it was an actual leader. It was quite a senior person in an organization. And they said, but I don't know what they're doing if they're at home. And I haven't heard a leader say that for a good while. I think earlier in my career, I was in the civil service. I was in senior HR roles for many years. And I remember senior leaders then saying, working at home, but I can't see what they're doing. I can't just look over and and see that they're busy. That was was far more common then. But to hear it now kind of shocked me. I hear it all the time, unfortunately. Really, and, and even if it's phrased in a very delicate way, it's what it's implying that I, as leader, need to be able to see what you're doing in order to be sure that you're doing a good job. Now, if you think about knowledge workers, for so many of us, that involves sitting in front of a screen. How, how uh, can you be sure that that person that you can see is adding value, is doing their best work? You know, you can just physically see them. They mm. can be doing anything. And, and I think but one of my personal theories, <laughs> see if it stands up to scrutiny, one of my personal theories about this and leaders is that their sense of leadership is supported by the number of people around them in the workplace. That if they are by themselves, there are fewer signs that they are a leader because they've got fewer people to tell what to do. Now, I know that sounds slightly cynical, but I think it builds on top of the, I don't know what they're doing. Mm. And they can't do good stuff without me. You know, there's another string to that. If I'm not there to supervise and inspire, their work won't be as good. And this, listeners, is why I love conversations with Richard, because we unpack things like this. Because, yeah, maybe that just physical presence of looking out across your vast empire, this whether that vast empire is a team of 10 or whether it's looking down a massive open plan office. <sighs> That I agree. I think that could play a part. And I think there's some sense of things unraveling being out of control Yes, as well. If people are away, they're probably going in the wrong direction. They're probably not developing what I really want them to develop because they haven't understood and they won't do it to the same quality standards that I have. And that can just sort of escalate and roll on and become sort of like, ah, everyone back in the office. Exactly. It's, you know, 
and this is me search, uh, but so much of the media coverage of this topic is based on senior leaders' collective beliefs about how it should be, rather than here's what evidence says about people's performance at work and outside of a shared physical workspace. And I want to zone in on that word you used a second ago, control. Often, these kinds of strategies are a belief that you can actually control other people at work, whereas you cannot. You're, you, you're limited to influencing the people that work for you. You cannot control what they think, feel, or do. And if you're trying to control people, you're not going to get the results you're hoping for. Absolutely. And how many leaders believe they can control, have this believe they have this sort of mythical ability to control others. And all that does is lead to utter frustration mm. and the, the draining of energy. And maybe exit from the organization when people say, no, I've done great work for the last year, working from home, even not permanently, but I like to have that choice. You mm. take that away from me with no good reason. Why should I stay with you? Mm. Absolutely. I've Gosh. derailed us slightly. No, but I love it. <laughs> I love our, our tangential chats. Let me, let me bring us back Please. to the 10 principles. The next one is best self. Being yourself isn't enough. It's about being the best version of yourself. Mm. I like this. I sometimes talk about is the best version of yourself as a leader showing up in this next context. I think we've got to be careful, though, with that because you won't always show up as your best self as a leader. And I want to normalize that. Mm. But if we can become aware of when we're not being our best selves, then that can be a cue to doing something different in mm. our next moment. But I don't want to convey this concept of it just being a relentless best self, best self, best self, and we're just these saints in the office. Exactly. It ain't going to happen. That's quite unsustainable in one way. Mm. Uh, I, I use that phrase regularly to sort of summarize being values led in different contexts. You know, it's a reflection point rather than comparing yourself to others, compare yourself to a kind of an idealized version of you. What mm. would you do if you were your best self? But I think it's important to frame it as best self possible in context Absolutely. rather than if I'm not best, I'm terrible. If it's not good, it's bad. That kind of categorical self-evaluation. It, it reminds me of conversations about productivity. If you rate your productivity as a binary, you'll either be pedaling faster to remain productive, or you'll feel bad that you're not being productive. Whereas if you reflect and ask, given everything that was going on today, how productive was I? It's a very different uh, way of looking at it. So given everything that's going on this week, to what extent was I my best self? Hmm. Yeah, that contextual element is so important. I know that's important in both of our work, but uh, absolutely, it's, it's getting leaders to appreciate there are many different contexts they'll face every day. And noticing them, understanding the different things they require of us, and looping back to self-awareness. But just mm. even the awareness of what am I thinking and feeling right now and how might that be leaking and having yeah. an impact on other people or uh, the awareness of um, anticipating situations and what I might do with those anticipations and so on. There's quite a bit in there. 
Absolutely. Once we start unpacking these, mm-hmm. that awareness is so multifaceted and so useful. Okay. Next one is one I talk about a lot with leaders, role model. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, you give others permission to do, is the note here. And I'd expand on that. And I often talk about leaders being on the organizational catwalk. People are looking at them thinking, so this is how I should behave. This is how I should communicate. This is how I should respond in a crisis. People are looking to leaders for cues. And the best example I've got of that is in, in the civil service many years ago, I was coaching a senior leader at the director general level. So mm. one below the top of the shop. And he was puzzled that people were arguing all around him. People were getting really almost to the level he described as aggressive with each other in in open office, having debates with each other. And it was like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound like the normal sort of environment of your office. It was a a big, quite a big open plan office. And he said, is there anything happened in you? Anything you've done that might have role modeled this for, for these people? And he said, oh, shit. <laughs> because two weeks earlier, he'd been, had one of his fellow DGs at his desk. It started off as quite an amiable discussion. And then they'd hit a, a difficult point where they'd started getting quite heated with each other, shouting and arguing and getting a bit pointy with each other. And whilst this was happening, as he reflected and started thinking, oh, Lord, what have I done? The whole office was just silent and watching this like a a movie unfolding. So those two Mm -hmm. very senior people had set the tone. This is how we do. This is how we operate when we've got uh, a disagreement. And it was then playing out. It was trickling down. So really powerful. So role modeling. Leaders aren't always aware this is a great opportunity for them to show people how they'd like it to be. Where I've done work with organizations around helping them clarify, um, codify, and communicate their values at an organizational level, that's one of my challenges to them, to the senior stakeholders. You want this to be one of the values, or you say this is one of the values. Are you prepared to do that? Or do you only want others to do it? Because then it's not authentic and people won't see it happening around them. And the tension between what's said and what's done will be even larger. And um, that's the kind of thing that can instill a lot of cynicism as well, never mind the behavioral, you know, fighting in the corridors uh, kind of thing. So I think that's really, really important that I, I love that phrase you use, what you're giving permission other to others to do. I mean, mm. that's it's not about perfection, but it's about the tone you're setting and yeah. reflecting on what impact that might be having on others' perceptions of the workplace. Hmm. And th- there's another element I look at this with leaders is do they have the courage to tackle behavior around them? that isn't aligned with how this team wants to be, because that can be quite daunting. Mm -hmm. But I love this phrase, you get the behavior you reward. So if someone is being a bit disruptive, a bit of an asshole in the workplace. Technical term. Yeah, yeah. 
obviously, sorry, I don't want to bamboozle people with terms like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, then, and it's not tackled. Hmm. Then people say, oh, well, that's how we should be. Again, it's that role modeling. And also the element of the high performer who's terrible with others. To what extent, you know, your needs are being met because they're doing a phenomenal job on paper, if you like. Mm. They're hitting all their targets, but the trail of destruction they're leaving behind them interpersonally is causing problems. Are you prepared to tackle that? Because if not, you're saying that's okay. Exactly. Mm. Right. We've got four more, Richard. So let's do it. Holistic, the sum total of who you are, what you know what you do, what you believe, and what you value. I, I have no argument with that. Particularly, I would alight on the word values. It's bringing our, what matters to us, our personal values to life in how we're showing up. Mm. The next one is embodied attitude. It's an embodied attitude of mind as much about being in the world as it is a way of doing leadership. So I think what this is saying to me is it's, it's not separate. The, the, there's a boundary between you as a leader at work and you outside of that. But the fundamental underlying principles are, are the same. It's, the, it's got part of that authenticity. Mm. And by implication, you can bring these qualities to life outside of work for, for, this, you know, for different reasons or exactly. to achieve the same outcome, but in a different context. Mm. Yeah. So not flicking a switch when you arrive in the car park before you go into the building or before you log on in the morning, but rather you're cultivating these things as a person and bringing them to life in that um, work context. Mm. Absolutely. The next one is leading self. Learning to lead yourself so others choose to follow you. It's about relationships, not traditional power. And that Learning to lead yourself, I think, really resonates with psychological flexibility and act because we're encouraging leaders to, to pause and reflect on who they'd like to be. What compass point do they want to represent their leadership style? What behavioral attributes does that uh, encompass? And using that as a guide for then how they show up. Rather than rigid rules or someone else's rules mm. that they've read about you know, good leaders do X and Y, where there, there's no wiggle room, there's no principles there. It's just, you do it like this. Mm. You mentioned gurus earlier. You know, the, they're the bane of my professional life, <laughs> oversimplified messages that maybe had roots in research, but they've now been distilled into something that is too generic, too rule-based, and is parroted rather than absorbed and brought to life in different ways. So that flexibility, that values element, that awareness of context, all super important to be able to deal with the different things that come before an organizational leader at any time of any day. Mm. Yeah. And the final one is relational. It concerns the relationship you have with yourself as much as it does the relationships you have with others. So aligned with ACT. For me, we know that our minds can produce lots of stuff. <laughs> Thoughts, emotions, memories, sensations, urges, and that stuff can sometimes be really helpful for us in being our authentic leadership self. And sometimes it can really hinder us. It can really get in the way. Thoughts like, 
oh, I'm not good enough, or I'm going to be discovered for uh, the fraud and the charlatan that I am, can really impact the way we show up, Mm. perhaps not the best version of ourselves. And what we do in response to that, and when that turns into behavior that prevents us from doing something helpful or leads us to doing something unhelpful. Um, and you know, it's very hard to like people if you don't like yourself. You know, it's very difficult to have good quality relationships with others if you don't have a good quality relationship with yourself. Mm. Coming back to compassion from earlier Absolutely. on, self-compassion can help really unlock a lot of that, acknowledging fallibility acknowledging the lack of perfection within us, but also acknowledging um, and understanding the needs of others and how they might be feeling or what they might be thinking, you know, considering that stuff. And if you don't mind, we're, we're deviating again, but you know, going back to that point about power you mentioned, you know, I, I often in, include references to organizational power in management and leadership work that I do to flex or give people the opportunity to flex their style. That that legitimate power, so-called, that comes with their position is only one kind of power you might use in order to influence other people, in order to get things done. And don't underestimate the power of relational power mm. of, you know, you're a, you're a great person to work with and people will follow you to the ends of the earth. But if it's all about how senior you are, or if there's some kind of compliance or threat based, mm. then you'll get what you asked for, but you won't get any more. And you might get some of that malicious compliance. You know, <laughs> I'm doing it even though I know it's wrong mm. because that's what you asked for. So awareness of that, awareness of your position and how you can use that position helpfully rather than like a blunt tool. Does that mm. make sense? It, it does. I, I love to hear you speak about power because it goes back to having the people in the office. That's, exactly. a, that's a power move. How can I use my power if no one's here to listen to me? Yeah. <laughs> and looking at different ways, if, if, if someone's really fixed on that word or that concept of power, how can you use your power in different ways? Maybe to lift others up. That's a great way to, to invest that energy and effort how can you use your power to lift up others? We've discussed on this podcast several times the positive power of conversations in the workplace, from chats through to something more formal on that continuum. And when I do workshops about this, a point I, I try and consistently make is that every chat you have with someone that works for you or works for someone who works for you, you have the opportunity to positively impact their experience of the day at work. But also, the opposite holds true. You have an opportunity to put a dent in their motivation, satisfaction, self-concept. So we can use conversation to really, as you say, lift people up. And as a leader, to be super aware that we're, um, we're visible and we cast a bit of a shadow sometimes, or our position does. So others' expectations of us, where it's helpful, we can really step outside of that and challenge those expectations of what a leader is, bring a bit of flexibility into it, mm. um, do what's helpful, not what is in a rigid box that says, this is what a CFO does and doesn't do. Um, 
and, and to bring that to life for the people around you. Because arguably, leaders have the opportunity to improve others' experience of work more than others because of the legitimate power they have to change things, to introduce things, to invest in things, to challenge behaviors. They can really have a powerful impact on the culture and the, the mood and the tone. Um, but if your focus is task, getting things done, getting it out the door, then that won't take care of itself. Things will happen, but you need to keep an eye on that and you need to be aware of the impact you are having on that by what you say, don't say, do, don't mm. do. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. It, mm. it goes back fundamentally for me to that role modeling. Mm. If, it, if it becomes like a production line in your mm. in your knowledge based organization, people will become more on autopilot themselves. They'll be doing right. I do this. I, I put the lid on the toothpaste, kind of thing, and pass it on. Mm. And and they're they're then feeling less engaged, less involved, less opportunities to share their ideas and questions, and it just brings everything down. And we're not really tapping into the potential of the people around us then absolutely and i'm um reminded of when we talk about psychological safety in the workplace and how we can cultivate that as leaders how we frame work can have an influence on that so if we frame work as pure task execution then people will do what they're told mm -hmm. but if we frame work as a learning problem people will look at it as maybe how could we do it better What's possible, you know? Mm. And framing things like that can really um, enable us to think flexibly about challenges and problems, and even just the day-to-day -day processes. Could we do this better, rather than I do what I'm told, and no more than that? We we won't see improvements if it's all about simply get it done. Absolutely fundamental to to all organisations, and something that organisations should be paying a heck of a lot a heck of a lot of attention to. This does strike me as quite a lot of work for leaders. Mm. I mean, I, I imagine someone's listening to this and saying, wait, you want me to do that on top of everything else? I mean, I think it's a legitimate challenge, isn't it? So how might we present this to aspiring leaders or leaders as something that is really deserving of their focus and attention? Absolutely bang on. Because when I looked through this, this work of Fiona and I thought, Oh God, yeah, I agree with all of these points. And perhaps I might add a couple more, but that's not manageable. I can't keep those in my head and then go around my leadership life. I'm then stuck inside my head with all these concepts trying to remember them rather than being me. So mm -hmm. this is where I think psychological flexibility comes in to support that development of authentic leadership. And that's been my sort of thought mission for the last few months, thinking, how can I present psychological flexibility in a compelling way to meet leaders where they are and support the development of their awareness, their adaptability, and their authentic action? So that's how I've broken it down with the processes and skills from psychological flexibility, inviting leaders to, to pause and think about their awareness, adaptability, and authentic action. And the beauty of this is we know from the evidence that this also 
enhances their flexibility and their own well-being. Mm. So it's taking a lot of what could be perceived as demands on the leader and instead presenting it as three principles for them to bring to life. Yeah, and mm. principles that can be supported by s skills that are yeah. based in the evidence. Yeah, I love that. I love that because busy people um, benefit from, and this is how it's done, rather mm. than that's your mission, that big conceptual thing over there, be more like that. Well, no, here are the skills. Here's mm. how you can put them into practice. Yeah, absolutely. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about how you help leaders understand this and, and bring this to life? Hmm. I think I might take a step back and just think about, and you'll have views on this as well, but what's the environment that leaders are facing right now? Mm. What themes am I seeing come up? And I guess the one word I might use is relentless. Mm. The leadership context can feel quite relentless sometimes, if not all the time. So that can leave leaders depleted of energy and resources, their resources that they might go to to support themselves. It makes them feel a bit more distant and less tangible. So they might miss perspectives, uh, opportunities, connections, and end up feeling kind of frustrated, confused, and tired. Mm. That's, that's a little potted view of, of how I view leaders. I don't know if that chimes with, with you. Relentless is a great word to describe it. Um, relentless change, relentless pivots around expectations, reorganizations, um, and um, being faced with, a lot of the time, fear-based anticipations about what the future is going to bring. Mm. You know, how will our business survive AI or some question like that? You know, will we be needed? How can we cope with this disturbance on the other side of the planet? How will we, you know, all of these sort of existential things mm. as well as the, and I had a terrible night's sleep last night and I've got to go in and deliver a presentation to the board this morning. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing I've noticed with leaders is, I've stolen this from one of my guests called Andrew Sewell, who has a set up a company called Overthinkers Anonymous. Mm. He talks about comparisonitis. <laughs> Great word. Which I love because <laughs> how often do we as leaders compare ourselves with others, maybe on the senior leadership team, maybe on the board? Mm -hmm. And how often when we do those comparisons do we find ourselves lacking in a deep and fundamental way? Yeah. So I think that's a little bit about, we talked earlier about context. That's kind of what the context can feel like sometimes for leaders. So the first step I'd say in building this psychological flexibility is pausing. Over time, how can we become more accustomed to deploying macro pauses and micro pauses? These are, these are terms I'm playing with a bit, but a macro pause is like maybe like a coaching session. Hmm. where you're thinking, I'm feeling a bit adrift. Adrift is another great word. I think about leadership as being relentless and feeling a bit adrift. How do, what do I want my leadership to be about? So maybe having external support and partnership to think about how do I want to be? What matters to me as a leader? How would I really like to be? 
And then a micropause will be more in the moment. You know how leaders go from various different events throughout the day. Maybe the first day, first part of the day, they're talking to their boss. Then they're moving on to a, a team presentation. Then they're maybe moving to a client interaction, maybe a pitch. Then they're speaking to a one-to-one with a member of their staff who's been bereaved. How do they adapt to these different circumstances that they mm-hmm. find themselves in a de- in the day whilst looking after themselves? How do they want to show up in each of those events? And I've already mentioned role modeling, but are we aware of how we're showing up in each of those events? Are we aware of what we're role modeling for others, the impact we're having on others, and whether we're showing up as that best version of ourselves for that context? So that's the pause. That's the beauty of the pause. And in that pause, we can then look at cultivating that awareness, adaptability, and authentic action. Does that pause resonate with you in your leadership work? Totally. And it's often challenged by others. I mean, I I, I published a video on the YouTube channel um, a few weeks back about how to address your procrastination, you know, very evergreen topic. Mm. But I made the point that actually, if you just start with the pause, you're giving yourself an opportunity to explore the gap between noticing you don't want to do the thing and deciding you're going to delay it between stimulus and response. And, you know, we're, we're talking about beating procrastination, but actually we can benefit from a pause of action to clarify what's really going on and then decide what we want to do with intention. It's automatic responses, I would suggest, that get us into trouble more often than not. Automatic responses to thoughts and feelings, automatic responses to others' behavior, or automatic responses to our beliefs about how it should be and how it's not at the moment. So learning to pause, I think, is an underrated skill, and it's Mm. a very, very powerful one. Yeah. So once we pause, then what do we do? Mm. I would say the first thing is awareness. What's going on around us? Because we can sometimes be caught up inside our own heads. What's happening in our direct environment, our team, the organization, the world? What's happening that could be influencing how I'm showing up or how I need to respond? Because we might miss out on cues, opportunities, or threats, or just noticing how someone is around us. Mm, mm. And that also noticing how we're showing up. We all develop as leaders, and sometimes we remain stuck in habitual patterns of behavior. This worked for me when I was an early career leader, and you keep being the same person. And that might be 10 years ago. It might even be 20 years ago. And that style, which perhaps once served us really well, perhaps is no longer appropriate for the context in which we now find ourselves in. We're perhaps more senior We're in a totally different environment with different people around us, yet we're still operating in that sort of rusty autopilot from 20 years ago. Unless we pause to consider this awareness, we're not not giving ourselves the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. I think of equal importance on awareness is our energy, our capacity to appreciate perspectives. What are we doing to recharge our energy every day? So those, those, that awareness can also lead to our time outside of work when we're with friends or interacting with family. 
what are we doing there that helps us recharge ourselves to be the leader we want to be? I think this is an incredibly important point because um, when I uh, talk about how people can do what matters at work and be productive and you know be their best selves at work, um, others often start with the point of time management. You know, it's useful to know where your time goes and to be aware of that. Absolutely, but time is just one thing, and different activities will deplete your energy in different ways. And to build an awareness of your feelings around energy and knowing how you can look after that when you're not at work, I think is as important as knowing where your time goes. Because if you've got no energy left to do things that are of equal importance to you outside of work, you won't be your best self in life. And that leads to burnout, you know, and that's the awareness of the difference between a check-in chat with one of my team versus having a very difficult conversation with a client versus giving a major presentation. These things might have similar amounts of time on the calendar, but have very different implications for the energy that they will require and the attention we'll have to give to them. I think attention management is as important as time management. What are you doing with your focus? Um, so just even challenging people to think about that for a moment is is very, very important, that, that um, awareness piece, because it's mm. at multiple levels. What am I aware of? Yeah. And I love, I love the way you describe those multiple levels, because I think there's one level we've touched upon. This is almost like Part of the superpower of awareness it's what's going on in our heads if we're being influenced and captivated by a thought that is like i'm not as good as john over there my fellow board member he's really rocking it and that impacts how i show up it can lead me to maybe not speak up in a meeting not show my views that can lead to sort of despondency so it's can we become aware of what our minds are doing and to be clear, our minds are doing stuff that they'd evolved to do. They're not broken, mm. but if we're having this type of thoughts, we can change our relationship with them so we can still connect with that, who we want to be, our authentic leadership self. That um, is so fundamental to learning the thinking skills of, of noticing where your focus is. In other words, am I focused on my own thoughts to the exclusion of what's going on around me? And if I'm captive, I love that word captivated. If I'm captivated by thoughts about how I'm not going to do a good job of giving this feedback, I may well fail to notice how the other person is before I start giving them the feedback and miss the cues that maybe today is the worst possible day to give them this feedback. So what am I focused on? Where is my focus? Or when is my focus? Is it on the future and the past to the exclusion of right now? And am I aware of how I am responding to that stuff, that mental stuff, and that stuff that's external to me? Mm. It's asking yeah. a lot, but when we can, we, we can teach people these skills. And, and I think when in my own coaching practice, I would estimate that coaches get the maximum benefit out of the whole work that we do when we're using ACT from this learning to see thoughts for what they are, not what they say they are, this diffusion piece, being able to step back from them and not being caught up in them all the time. And it's so powerful because so many of the people in the world don't realize they can do that. 
We sort of grow up thinking, I need to solve these thoughts. I need to sit with these thoughts. I need to act on these thoughts rather than, nope, they're just thoughts. Yeah, isn't that the way that we've grown up like this? This is, this is something I need to solve or I need to banish these thoughts, mm-hmm. like keep them, keep them tightly sealed in a box. And that takes energy to keep that box tightly sealed. Yeah. And while I'm doing that, it's preventing me from doing other things mm. that could be equally or more important. Yeah. That leads beautifully on to the adaptability piece. So once we started to enhance our awareness skills of what's going on around us, how we are showing up, what our minds are doing, can we may then make a choice of how could I be the best version of me in this particular circumstance, in this one-to-one meeting or this difficult conversation with my boss or this team presentation where I'm looking to energize and be a visionary leader in front of this team. How can I deploy what matters to me in a way that has a go at achieving that and you won't always succeed, but it's, it's about you being a bit more prepared. It might, as you say, it might be an hour in the calendar, but it might take a bit more thought and preparation. Think about who you want to be, to be that adaptable leader. That um, is such an important point, the, the hour in the calendar. I, I think um, whether I'm remembering this correctly or not, but yeah, we, we, we have. We focused on it on the podcast, this notion that when we look at how we want to spend our time, it's coming back to the old adage that the map is not the territory. So I have an hour in the calendar for that, but that is not going to feel and look the same as this other hour tomorrow because the activity is different, the context is different, the people are different. I'm going to be different. So calendars are great for giving us a visual representation of how we want to spend our time. They're lousy, really, um, at predicting how that will be experienced. We have to really be aware and we have to give thought to that before we do it. Yeah, giving thought to how we want to adapt for that meeting. Mm. Knowing that in that meeting, it could be like Tales of the Unexpected. Things come in left <laughs> and right and that were completely unpredictable. And that's when a micro pause can really come in and we think, oh, crikey, there's a curved ball coming in. Yeah. Just taking a moment and thinking, okay, this, this changes direction slightly i can choose how i want to show up now and adapt in the moment and i find that once we start working with these skills with leaders the way they combine really helps them get quite interested and invested in this flexibility it's like uh, playing a video game we're responding and we're doing things differently and we're weaving and that can be in itself sometimes quite energizing absolutely Letting people understand they always have a choice in how they behave and that choosing how you want to be is not the same potentially as choosing what you want to feel. So we can feel one thing and behave in another way if that's really helpful in that Mm. context, or at least not using our feelings as a precondition for our behavior. So I can't do this until I feel okay about doing it. I can't have this conversation until I feel confident and so on. Mm. Understanding that, no, I I can decide to do it. The behavior is a function of my decision, not this stuff 
that my mind is giving me. Yeah, which, which leads on to the final part for me is that authentic action. How fundamentally do we want to be as a leader? How would we like to impact with others? What do we want to be about? How would we like people, in its broader sense, how would we like to be remembered as a leader? Because people will remember how you were, not that you broke sales records or achieved this amazing campaign or developed a new policy. They might, a bit of that, but they'll more remember how you impacted on them. How you how made you them feel. Were. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. This guy came into the office and we were scared of him because we didn't know how he was going to respond. Mm. Or this person came in and, and genuinely took some moments with us each day to ask how we were and listened when we answered. You know, two very different impacts on others based on some simple behaviors. I love that example. I remember, and I still talk about it sometimes, about just talking to a leader about what they do when they arrive in a meeting, whether it's a virtual meeting, whether it's a meeting face-to-face, or whether they're just walking through an office. What are they like then? Yeah. So they stop and say, hi, how are you? Um, how was your weekend? And do they actually mean that? Or do they just want the, the recipient of that question to go, fine, thanks. Fine. Yeah, or busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so the impact of that should never, never, never be underestimated. I remember a leader in the civil service, a director general, uh, Philippa Lloyd, and she liked a hot desk around her area. She had a, she was, had her cover, her responsibility covered more than one floor. So she used a hot desk just around. And that had such an amazing impact on people because she was sitting next to people. And you could see initially they were all like, holy shit. (laughs) Big boss is here. The director general is sitting next to me. And then typically something like this would happen a bit later on in the day. You'd hear Philippa's laugh. She'd be laughing or she'd be saying, did you see Strictly last night? Mm. Or, oh, I remember once we spoke and your, your daughter was doing exams. How did they go? Things like that, people will remember. Mm. Conversation will- again. It's conversation, proper connection with other human beings and acknowledging and making it really clear that you too are a human and you have a life outside of work. You can choose how much you want to share of that, of course, mm. but to demonstrate your humanity is a Great way to connect with other people. Mm. And that's what I often do in coaching on that macro pause. We're thinking, getting people to reflect on the qualities they want to bring to their leadership, like maybe it's honesty, courage, kindness, vision. They can then become more of a prominent guide to how they show up and they can experiment and dial them up and dial them down. They can help them make decisions. And just that inner work can really tap into that authentic leadership self and help people also develop that flexibility whilst, and this is the, the absolute winner, cultivating their own well-being. Mm. It's not at the expense of, it's in addition to, which is a real win. Mm. So that's, that's a little whistle-stop tour of how I'm working this this sort of proposition of how I can package this for for leaders to help them hopefully come on a journey with me. I think it's great. I love it. It's 
memorable, which is really important because you want this to stick with, you know, in someone's mm -hmm. mind as a, as a tool. Um, it simplifies some very complex things in, you know, in the original uh, way of theorizing this and talking about it and into something that someone can act on, no pun mm -hmm. intended, on a daily basis, which is what's, what really matters. You know, what are you going to do with this? Again, in, in leaders, it's very important that just because you know this, it's not the same as you actually doing it. So when working with the leaders, I really emphasize the practical application. Often they're challenged intellectually. And so they're used to having intellectual arguments about ideas. That's fine. I'll argue till the cows come home, but quid pro quo, I'd like you to experiment with doing it, mm. not just yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that sort of experimental mindset and bringing it to life is, is essential to it, to express what you're trying to have a go at. And similarly, what I've just talked through is experimental. It's evolving. My mind is already, I can feel my cogs whirring just based on this conversation with you thinking, ah, oh, yes, I could enhance that perspective there. Or I could bring that in there. So it's evolving, which I think is a beautiful thing. I'd hate it to be a static proposition. As much as it would be unhelpful to have static behavioral repertoires going into the, the workplace every day in a rote kind of mm. way. And your example with that former colleague of being flexible and where she located herself and having conversations with people. I love the fact that these are small habits. So this is not personal reinvention. This is not, you know, new year, new year, new me, but rather I'm going to have a go at this and see what happens. And I've no doubt that she noticed it was having a positive impact. So she kept doing it, did more of it and realized this is a great route to finding out how people are being the person I want everyone to be, you know, uh, role modeling these effective human connection moments rather than a guru sat her down and said, mm. here are the two things you must do every day. Yeah. And the impact of that, just her investing that time to sit in different places. And she also worked four days a week. And at one point that, that day was a Thursday, not a Friday. Mm -hmm. And she was open why she did that for family reasons and self-care reasons. And she was not available. She wasn't one of those leaders who would suddenly just respond to an email on their, their day off. Mm. Like, could I just come in there sort of thing? No. We knew she wasn't available. There were routes if there was an emergency. But she was very clear that that was if there is an emergency. Let's be clear on what an emergency is. Yes, let's, let's define that. Yes. Yeah, we're not landing planes here. We're not doing surgery. And, you know, this, this is a really tangible example, I think, that leaders or aspiring leaders could reflect on this. How do I respond to electronic messages, whatever format they take, when I'm saying one thing, but I'm doing something else? When leaders are emailing their teams late at night, it's sending the message, whether it's intended or not, that you should be reading these, responding to these, or even uh, this is what leaders do. So if you want to be a leader, you need to be sitting in front of your email at 10 p.m. sending out these missives. Mm. There's no need it, for this, but it's what happens all the time. And it goes back to that role modeling, but also it, it becomes, it become, it spreads. Yes, absolutely. Because someone will 
they receive that email at 10 o'clock, they'll respond, oh, it's you and me, boss, aren't we? This is the underlying message. They'll respond to the email, but it's kind of like a badge of honor. Mm. I was the first one to respond. Some losers will go in tomorrow morning and only see this thread, but I was there. And then it's now we all need to be on all the Mm. time just in case. And uh, from potentially not an intended message at all. It's the unintended byproduct of it suits me. And it may well suit that person. Mm. You know, I really uh, think we should all be moving on from static views of what a working day looks like because we've all got different lives. We all live in different time zones. We, you know, there's no need for this absolute, it starts and ends like this, as long as it's a sustainable working style. Mm. But that doesn't mean everyone else needs to be available. Everyone else needs to respond. And acknowledging that that could free up so much for someone's life to be able to work at a time that works really well for them. Mm. And, you know, if leaders can model that, model their presence and absence rather than it's awful when you're senior, you need to have your phone in your hand 24 seven because what might happen if you don't? Amen. Absolutely mm. agree. Ross, this has been fantastic. I love how we um, kicked off our course. Actually, we just take 30 minutes to do this and we're over an hour now, but that is not a problem as far as I'm concerned. And I know listeners will um, hopefully have enjoyed this, but also possibly have questions. So listeners, you can get in touch uh, via email. Drop us an email at podcast at worklifepsych.com or uh, you can join us on our online community at worklifepsych.club and we have a space there just for discussions all about the podcast. And it's a free resource. It's just somewhere online. I know sometimes people don't like emailing, but they might leave a message on, on, uh, on the club. So you can do that as well. And we're on the social channels. If you prefer to use one of those work life psych, you'll, you'll find us there. Ross, any, I, this is, I'm springing this on you, but um, I do this to PLR every time. Any final thoughts? Uh, what would you like listeners to have ringing in their ears about authentic leadership? Good question. And I think what I'd go is with is a simple question. What are you doing today to recharge your batteries? Mm, I like that. Because without without that battery recharge, it gets more and more difficult to be that best version of yourself a bit more often. And that recharging could be different for every single listener. And it needn't imply lots of time, but Mm. maybe time away from your screen, time outside, a sit down with a cup of tea, um, a moment with someone you really like (laughs) at work, a walk around the workplace, just putting down your digital device. Yeah. So many different ways we can, we can do that. I love that. Ross, thank you so much. I'm going to put links to you and your work in the show notes. And um, if listeners have questions and they come to me, I might reach out to you. It's if it's oh, about what that. you've been talking and um, provide answers uh, in, a, in a future episode. But I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been great. And I've loved doing this. For listeners, we're recording the video of this as well. And um, I don't always do that. And it's just lovely to see the person in front of me um, as we have a conversation. So thank you. It's been great. Ross, look forward to our next conversation. But for now, everyone, thank you for listening.
for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.